0: Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost Series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. This series is brought to you by Chagisk in collaboration with Dairy Sustainability Ireland, the National Rural Network, and Dairy, uh, Food Drink Ireland, SkillNet. And we have Pat Murphy, head of the Chagisk Environment KT program, assisting us with questions. So good morning to you, Pat. Good morning. And just before we introduce our, our main guests I just want to to talk about the, the the main issue that we're going to be speaking about today is uh, the use of uh, uh products and uh, internal parasites we know are a major challenge to grass-based production systems across the world and parasite control is largely based on suppression using what are called antlementic pr- products or drugs However, there is growing concern around the emergence of drug resistant parasites. And one man who is leading the charge to combat anthelmentic resistance is Bruce Thompson, who is a dairy farmer based in Ballyfin, County Leash. And uh, today, Bruce is going to speak to us about protecting dung beetles while managing parasites. So, Bruce, you're very welcome to the Signpost webinar series. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Pat. How are we doing? But Bruce, you, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your setup there in uh, in Leash? Is it is Ballyfin, isn't it? Yeah, you're uh, correct. Right?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, um, yeah. We're we're, uh, we're milking uh, milking dairy cows here in a, a spring calving system. Um, it's uh, conventional type. So um, yeah, we're, we're uh, calving our cows in in a nine week period and maximising the production from grass. Um, so look, I suppose my, I, I came home and farming in 2003 at the time there was 54 cows in the farm and my dad had lost 48 of those with tuberculosis so i suppose that animal health was always a big a big scarring on, on our minds at the time and has, has kind of stuck with us um yeah so look since the quote and we've we've uh, pushed on to 300 cows this year um so, yeah, I suppose that's, that's kind of a bit about, about ourselves. Uh, we keep all the stock on the farm as well. So, half of our farm is now owned and half is rented. So, that's, that's our business today.
0: Very good. And this, this time, 20 years ago, could you have imagined yourself speaking about dung beetles on a... A webinar. <laughs> I'd
1: say if, if you were to go back five years, Pat, I, I wouldn't have reached maybe two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't even know what a webinar was five years ago, Pat. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what what brought you to this, um, and what led to your interest in dung beetles? And and you you completed a, a Nuffield Scholarship recently. Maybe you just explain what's involved there as well.
1: Yeah. So the with the. the what created me interest, well, I, I, I was on a safari down South Africa, uh, I was over 10 years ago with my then girlfriend, now wife, and we saw this this big uh, telecropod, uh, which is the big rollers that you see, David Attenborough showing on, on National Geographic, rolling a big ball of elephant poo across the plain. And uh, I was absolutely fascinated and thought, you know, th- Wouldn't it be a great addition if we had dung beetles in Ireland to to bury the dung into the soil at the roots of the grass and um, thought no more of it. And uh, fast forward on a few years, myself and dad were, were, um, with with the intensification on the farm, we found ourselves dosing calves more, worming calves more and um, decided that, you know, there was something maybe not clicking 100% right. Um, And it seemed to be the accepted management strategy at the time but we we started you know taking a more of a diagnostic approach from, from that day on and a chance conversation then with, with Dr Sally Ann Spence an entomologist over in the UK about dung beetles she actually said uh, that there was dung beetles on my farm even though I didn't know about it and that the fact that I had reduced my wormers meant that I was probably um having to worm animals less because they were getting rid of the um the the, the uh, uh, parasite eggs out, out of the dung pats, and um, I went out to my paddock in excitement just to see was this true. And lo and behold, here was dung beetles uh, working away on under turd mark. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like so it. I like it.
1: That, that got me. That got me interested in the the whole the whole helmet, the the uh, parasite control of. Of uh, aspect of with dung beetles, so I, I did a bit of research into it and got very en- uh, engrossed in it, and decided to to further um, find out about it um, to, to scratch the itch, I suppose. Right. Right. I a scholarship, and it was absolutely fantastic to, to get it that I could could research this further. So that was just,
0: Well, look, okay. we'll ask you to share your screen with us. You have a, a short presentation for us to. to, to Tell us about your your uh, I suppose journey so far with uh, with this this subject and um, I I know you've some really excellent slides so I'm I'm looking forward to it. So
1: here we go. These are dung beetles, um, and I'm going to speak to you today about how they how they're affected by anthemintics and how they actually reduce parasite loadings. So here's here's the the very first dung beetle I was talking about. It was so controlled by it, that I took a photograph of it. Um, so that guy, that guy changed changed me my, uh, <laughs> my perspective on things. And um, that's a little bit about the Nuffield. Um, I'm a 2020 scholar. I'm very, very thankful to Nuffield Ireland for for um, investing a lot of the resources into me uh, to investigate this topic. Um, I'm, as I'm a 2020 Scholar, I didn't get to do much traveling, however I did get to do uh, a a bit in last March around South Australia and Tasmania um, to investigate the dung beetles there. Um, So we are looking at at dung pats as being a noxious weed sitting on top of the soil. Um, And we need to get them into into the grass where they're they're a nutrient-rich source um, right at the roots. Uh, but the, the dungpaths are full of all sorts of flora and fauna, as you can see from this picture. Um, they all, they're all co uh, which means that they, they feed on, on faeces. Um, and the, the more that they feed on the faeces, the, 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 uh, the quicker they degrade into the soil. So we, we, these are, are, are important for um, nutrient recycling and for the destruction of the dungpath. Uh, the one I'm focusing on, of course, is the dung beetle. So in, in dung beetles, we have two general types. So we don't have those rollers in, in Ireland. We have two, um, two general types. We have the, the dwellers that live in the dung pats and they lay their eggs in the dung pats and hatch in it. And then we have the, the, the tunnellers, and they actually dig holes into the ground and lay their eggs in the soil. Um, and I was saying that this is a, a positive feedback loop. So that these guys, um, if they're encouraged, will they have benefits to, to, to farmers? Um, they reduce the parasite and, and fly loadings on, on pasture, and as I hit on there, they they uh, re, they um, they're an important source for or important part of the breakdown of the dump pad. So. You'll have more efficient uh, nutrient recycling because the the path's broken down quicker. There's less nitrogen um, lost to the atmosphere. It m- might sound small fry, but it it all it all adds up. Um, there's less risk of the the uh, the dump pack being being lost to the, to the atmosphere. And um, the I, I mentioned there, I went down to Australia and Tasmania. One one of the reasons that they they actually imported beetles and bred them in. in that country, that was why I, I, I traveled there, they had a, an awful problem with, well, A flies and B pasture fouling. They actually had a high percentage of their, their pasture land covered in dung pats prior to importing these beetles. Um, why did they have to import them? Well, in, in Australia, they imported cattle and sheep in, in the late 18th century, but they didn't bring the dung beetles with them. And as farming intensified throughout the, the 19th century that they, they they found these dumpats were, were sitting around for for years before they actually uh, literally dried up and disappeared. The dumb the dump beetles, um so they don't actually eat the pad they actually drink it. Um, they drink the juices out of it. And in doing so sort they of dehydrate it. Um, if you go to a, a half um, half degraded dumpat and dig it up with a spade you'll see that it's completely alive with, with earthworms. The earthworms actually, they, they really, they're the ones that really really do the work, but the, the problem is the dung pats are too wet and sloppy when, when they're fresh. Um, they taste like when they're fresh. So the, the dung beetles dry them out to prepare them for um, encroachment by the, the earthworms and bring into the soil. And then the, the, the dung beetles themselves are also a transport service, they're a taxi for phoretic mites and I will talk with them in a second um, the benefits to the environment then, um, so the, the dung beetles in, in uh, reducing the, the amount of pats that are on pasture and bur- burrowing it into the soil, they're reducing the risk of the uh, of, of water runoff going into um, from these pats going into waterways and they are an important food source for predators, bats are a big one um, but small birds cold tits as well. Um, and I, I believe that, that buzzards actually eat the, the big the big they're the burrowers. Um, I haven't haven't seen that happen yet, but I'm told they do. Um, there are species that deserve recognition in their own right. So there, there's a lot of them in the country. We don't we don't really realise them. Farmers tell me that they don't have dung beetles on the farm. They do have dung beetles on the farm, um, they're just in, in small numbers. Uh, so, yeah, here's a paper that's written by uh, Max Anderson. Um, he's doing a PhD over in the UK, and he's, he's looking at how different grazing strategies um, affect the, the amount of dung beetles and the, the type of dung beetles, and what effect that has on bat species. So you can see even in a small difference between a lay and a permanent pasture, that we've seen a a, a different uh, a different passing of bats uh, over the, over those fields. Uh, so the, over in the UK, then um, Brian Sands in the University of Bristol has done a, a field experiment. On, there's there's number number of these experiments, but I, I particularly like Brian's one because it's very it's very real. It's it's it using similar species to what we have in Ireland, if not the same. And it's, it was done in field, so it was, it was open to the weather. And um, whereas we're seeing uh, in any of these experiments that are done either in lab or out in field, we're seeing reductions of between 0 and 100% in terms of, of parasites uh, emitting from these, uh, reduction of parasites emitting from these dumppats. Brian is one, which is a very real one, uh, was at about 30% reduction over a 10-week period on, on grassland. So it's 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 very true that they, they do reduce um, in, in, gastrointestinal parasites in their animals. The problem is uh they're a in population. So r- really we need as many of these dumb people as possible to, to uh, process these dumb cats. Um, but the problem is we we the populations of them are declining. Um, so they really are up up uh, up the creek, I suppose. Um, why are they declining? Well, the the antimintics, um, that's our warm warmers um, and synthetic pyrethroids. Those those products are very damaging to the to the populations of the beetles because not not only do they are they toxic that they kill them, but the, the, as as uh, as these products are leaving the, the animal over a period of, of weeks, um, the persistency has sublethal effects. So in other words, it affects their um, affects their their reproduction capabilities. Uh, then other, other things are probably smaller effects, but they do have an effect. There's some species will, will emerge over the winter in, in the autumn and early spring, um, but we, we could have animals taken off fields or have less dungpats around. So they come up they come up and they're, they're basically hungry for, for food. That's um, not there. They don't like high grain diets and they don't like the licorice dungpats that Bruce has on his farm from his dairy cows. Um, pasture harrowing and tailing animals doing that, that's very damaging as well. Uh, or ploughing, in effect, is, that's particularly damaging to the tunnellers, as, as you can imagine. Uh, the other thing with antimintics is they are, fi- we're finding other environmental issues with them. Here is a paper that was released, I think it was last year, right, by Trinity College. They, they did a, a trial on 88 sites ar- around Ireland and they, they sampled the water and on um, 18 of those sites, sorry, 18% of those sites, it was actually found that there was Antimythic's presence in the water. Um, that, that, that was groundwater now, so uh, you're looking at springs and wells, uh, which is, which is worrying. worrying. Another effect then was Jillian Gilbert up on the Isle of Islay, which is between Northern Ireland and Scotland, um, has dis- discovered that the, the reason for the main one of the main reasons for the chuff population declining on, on the island was the combined use of triclobendazole and synthetic pyritides so that is a warmer that's actually triclobendazole is for fl- fluke and synthetic pyritides such a pour on for flies um, they're called flight repellents or flight control um, that reduced the amount of um, uh, pu- pupae is, uh, um, in the paths from dung beetles that the fle- little fledglings were we used to feed on to get up to, to target weight for overwintering. Also, then another issue, another threat for the antimintex is resistance, and that is becoming more of a problem. Um, basically, the, the, the rule is wherever we look for resistance, we find it. It's just that we're not looking for it. And that was another thing I was, I was looking at down in, in South Australia, Tasmania, was the effects that resistance, which is a lot more ex- accelerated down there, the, the problems that that is creating with farmers? So we have farmers there that uh, they're not able to put sheep onto some proper some properties because of uh, a particular parasite called Hemlockus contortus. Um, so that that beetle is or that that parasite is becoming a problem. But that's it's getting more, more of an issue here. We're seeing more so in sheep, but it's starting to creep into cattle now as well, that we're, we're seeing resistance with, with, uh, problems with resistance. Um, and also, in, in, uh, next year, from next year onwards, we have to look for prescriptions for these products, so we have to demonstrate a need for them. Um, now, I would like to say at this point, I'm not, I'm not trying to be Aaron rockovich. Brockovich. Um, these products are very, very important. I, I use them on my farm, and I don't think I'll be able to farm in the system that I'm in Without antimitics, reducing stocking rates uh, won't won't affect uh, or won't solve the problem either. So we have to we have to think about this. We have to really concentrate on where we need to use antimitics and and if we need to use them and what animals they need to be used on. Um, So we we need to uh, we need to make sure that these products are going to stay working for us in in future. so this, this is a, a slide that shows uh, it, each line is, is a different animal group, different management group. And we can see here uh, the red line is, that's typical of what we're doing in, in Irish farms. So we're looking at, uh, we're not really minding the free living stage of the parasites. So we're not, we're not considering uh, what the loading is too much for, for this is this is for uh for for sheep. Um, we're, we're not really considering what the loading is on pasture, but uh, at five thousand eggs per day with a, a a typical system where we're worming worming every twenty one days, the animals are, are performing just average is all we, is all we can say. Whereas if you look above that, um, uh, the, the animals that were were giving a low uh, parasite burden actually performed better with no antiminting being used, rather than the ones with, with, uh, with antimintics being used, on, uh, on what, what's typical um, uh, pa- pasture management. So this is a, a, a pilot scheme that uh, a fellow scholar, uh, Rob Howe, is a vet over in LLM, LLM Vets over in the UK, and last year he tried out a pilot scheme with, with a number of farmers, uh, we can see there was none of them here doing any, any fecal egg testing before the before the, the pilot scheme, and he got uh, he, he got 94 percent of them to actually do fecal egg counts, and sixty nine percent of those farmers uh, started using uh, wormers based on the uh, based on the results from the fecal egg counts, and. Because of that, then uh, there was a massive reduction in the in the MLS and the macrolide, the MLS and the macrocylic lactones, and they are one of the most damaging ones to the to the environment. So they, they got a massive reduction um, in in the use of, of microcylic lactones. And uh, yeah, as we see, then we, we go on here that 62 sixty three percent of the farms use a, a lungworm vaccine, and that. That's a, it's a fantastic way of, uh, of ensuring that uh, you, you don't have to go in with, with a worm because of, of coughing terminal the of the season. It's something maybe we need to work on in this country. We haven't, we haven't really uh, hit on the, these lungworms or lungworm vaccines. It's not, it's not new science. It's, it's there for a long time, uh, but it's something we need to look at a bit more. There's a lot of, a lot of issues with coughing and lungworm on farms. So what are we doing on our farm then? Um, we can see here that, that we, uh, we, we look at, at the, the calves first on the farm uh, to build resistance. So the, the, we look at the calves as being the most, the most problematic when it comes to parasites for two reasons. One is that they actually emit the most amount of parasite eggs because they're no immune system. So they're not suppressing the parasites, they're, they're a real vector for, for parasites. Um, but the other thing is that they're also, they're, they're also the most naive. So uh, they, they're at, at the highest risk. Um, so we have to, look, we have to we concentrate on these jobs. The cows have two types of immunity, or the cat, cattle have two types of immunity. They have um, innate and adaptive. Um, the innate is, is what they're born, but that's genetic. Um, we won't talk about that too much. Uh, ICVF are doing, doing a bit of work there, particularly around um, liver fluke, but um, it's, it, it's it's a it's a, it's a real long a long, uh, a long approach. The, the real low hanging fruit here is the adaptive resistance. So that's the resistance that the, the calf each individual calf builds itself when it gets exposed to parasites, um, and they need they need to be exposed, but need to be carefully exposed. Um, so overprotecting them using long-acting products is not the answer. Uh, so, we, we, on our own farm, we use this approach called traffic-like grazing, and that's where we um, we map the farm in terms of uh, pa- parasite fouling. Um, so, this this can be based on calves. So, the calves, walk, uh, as they're grazing around the farm, um, taking into account that they're leaving high loads of parasites behind them, we mark the paddocks yellow. So, that's uh, that's considered medium risk, and um, red risk then is when they fail on a fecal egg count test. And we're also noting the, the parasite, which is important as well for, for ones that are seasonal, like longworm, like for example. So we we've, we need to keep the calves moved. So they move the the, uh, the calves are they get, only get three days' allocation of grass and they're back fenced. Um, so we invested a lot in portable equipment, and we've no designated calf paddock. Those, those calf paddocks, they have to go, they're, they're, they're a big problem. So you can see the type of portable equipment. We're using water troughs. Um, and This is a, uh, something that I made with my farm manager. It's, it's a pipe reader for rolling up water pipes. And um, Then taking into account then the, the where the contamination is in, in the pasture itself. So we can see here from this slide that the, the, the highest level of uh infected stage larvae is down in, in, the, in the bottom five centimeters of grass so therefore we we don't want to be grazing calves down tight um, so we we actually we for the calves particularly for the first first half of the season um, is we, we great what we do is we graze them on heavier covers so this will be we're going into a cover of about two thousand uh, also, I, I suppose uh, not related, the ca- uh, summer scour syndrome uh, is not a problem when you're grazing grass, not so much a problem when you're grazing ca- grass like this. Um, the calves' rumen is not fully developed, so stronger grass is probably better for them anyway. Um, this is only done with the calves, I will, I will make that point, and as the season goes on then we, we tighten them up. Um, we use, a, uh, we we actually doing our own fecal egg counts, but there's plenty of labs around the country and uh, that, that provide this service. Um, it's it's not it's not expensive and it's not hard to do. There's nothing complicated about it. Um, so the diagnostics then tell us when we need the dose. So we go in then to the calves, um, and we're looking at the. There's a, an industry no, uh, rule, it's called the 80-20 rule, and that is that. 80% of the parasites are in 20% of the animals. So we, we're looking, fo- we really want to focus on, on getting that, that, that 20%. Um, the top top animals in, in the in the, the herd don't need to be warmed um, generally speaking. So the first point to make is the right product. So we're looking, uh, as it's a dairy farm here, we're looking at using the, the first in the calves because we can't use that um, and in lactating animals. So we're, we're trying to hedge our bets on, on, on keeping uh, the, the macrocytic lactones and the benzodazos for later on. Um, so yeah, the right time, that's just to do with the, the uh, FECs. So the right amount I'm very important to and the way to the calves and get that correct. Um, refuge it, and that's, that's a safe refuge for... Uh, so uh, for parasites that we know are susceptible to the, to the wormer, So you, you're going to get that when you don't worm all the animals in the group. Um, so basically what that means is if you, if you take an animal and you worm it and you have say 10% of the worms in, in that, that event actually surviving the animal, that, that 10% are potentially resistant to the product. So, um, the genes of the gene pool created by that 10% can be quite damaging. So we, we need that gene pool to be diluted down by uh, the genes of the parasites that are in the in animals that weren't those. if that makes sense. So uh, basically what we need to do is keep parasites on the farm that we know are susceptible to warmers, and we can keep those in animals that are not being affected. So we're weighing the calves. And we're looking at target weights in the, in the calves uh, based on uh, performance, previous weights, and uh, genetic disposition. So, after their worm dose, then uh, these calves go out onto what we call the dump paddock. And this paddock is used solely for the purpose of putting the calves on after they're dosed. So, they're onto they're this for two to three days and they expel the highest concentration of wormer out onto these paddocks um, so that, that means that as those products are, as we say are damaging to the to the to, um, uh, dumb beetles um we're, we're trying to keep that in one spot and it's a, it's an area that doesn't get used too often so it, it's kind of uh, it's kind of concentrating the problem into one area rather than diluting it around uh, i will say that last week we went in our firstborn into the calves and 50 percent of them were one dose and the rest of them were all fine. Uh, that was out of I think 83 there in that event. Uh, in terms then of flight control, uh, to get away from our synthetic pyrethroids, which is our our uh, our flight our, our fly repellents, uh, we are using more. Uh, we're putting on our hemp underpants, and we're wearing we're we're using these uh, alternative products. So we Stockholm tar eucalyptus oil. Uh, they are. They are, they are more earnest to put on, I've been using these now for three years and I've been actually been getting better results from them uh, based on the amount of heifers coming into the parallel with blind quarters. We've had no summertime time status. we haven't had that in years anyway admittedly even with the dysentenic pyrocytes. Um, so the problem with this is you have to go more often with it and it's a pain to put on. And there's my voice radiator roller which she now knows where it is um, and th- all of this then leads to the milking cow herd so my milking cow herd haven't been wormed since 2017 at, at any point and the milk elisa testing that's the antibody levels of of astratasia which is a stomach worm the the readings for that in the milk tank haven't been um, haven't been rising um now, it's, it's a young herd, so its performance is, is, uh, hasn't been realised yet. Um, so we, our, our fertility figures are, haven't been affected, and our milk solids have actually increased in, in, in the face of it being a young herd from 432 kilograms in 2017, which was the last time we warmed the cows, up to 458 last year, which is in line with the genetics of the herd. And I will definitely use andamintics if and when I need. Um, then onto dung beetles. Then this is an experiment we, we we were trying out on last year. We were catching beetles and breeding them. Um, so I mentioned earlier about the um, the phoretic mites. You can probably see them here uh, crawling around on the tops of these beetles. Um, yeah, the, those mites actually. Uh, are, uh, so the use um, and flies, so and there's a train of thought that they might consume parasite eggs, but I'm I'm not 100 certain on that yet. But they definitely do, they definitely do eat the fly larvae. So we're, we're trapping beetles, and we, we we took into breeding them. Now the problem is that this is quite laborious, so because of that, we had to we had to revisit the our our, our ethics on the, on the farm. Um, and here' was the, the help we got um, for the job. These work for snacks and fruit juice and I find them quite efficient. Um, so that's my son and, and my daughter working away there dig, digging out for a, a breeding cage. And this is one of the this is one of the first ones we made was with the field breeding cages for, for the beetles. Um, and this is an indoor incubator type of system. Now unfortunately last year with the, with the restrictions I wasn't able to get, my starter stock. This is specifically for the, the tunnelers, which I think have the the most to bring to most benefits to bring to agriculture. Uh, uh, but I wasn't able to get my starter stock. Unfortunately, you could only get one or two beetles here and there, and I need a couple of hundred to get, get the thing rolling. Uh, so uh, w- with a group of other people there in in, uh, in the UK, I have produced this website uh called Beetles for And we were in Groundswell this year. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to travel, but you can see there that the following of people that that seem to be seem to be looking at these beetles, it's creating a a bit of traction. They are a a really good indicator species. So if you if you have a good few dung beetles on your farm, uh, you can be fairly sure that there's a a good uh, nutrient cycling system taking place on your farm. and also uh, if, if people think that, that dairy farmers are <laughs> are anti-environment, my own my own discussion group have, have recently been awarded an EIP for looking at um, looking at this whole area and um, we've gotten funding to do so and it was it was embraced with open arms by the, by the whole group. So that's that's me and that's that's where we're at with dumb beetles and and, um, and parasite control. So thank you for listening and Maybe you can kind of get a grasp now on this whole feedback
0: loop, and the dung beetles are 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 positive. Thanks very much, Bruce. Uh, really enjoyed your presentation and very, uh, you know, <laughs> excellent messaging coming out of there. That there is a, you know, a, there is a, a place there for nature-based solutions. And for me, I suppose we we're, we're we're really only discovering. Uh, what nature can offer really aren't we uh, in relation to and, and I, I suppose we have to be so cognizant of that when we are developing new approaches uh, to to uh, farming approaches um, so you've obviously you've you shared a the website there uh, is that that farmers can and, and anyone can log on to that to find out you know how they can support dung beetles on their farms is that sort of information yeah there?
1: yeah so it, it the group that we've Producer is, is, is a very unusual group. It's we've an ecologist, uh, environmentalist, uh, a, a vet, um, a conservation farmer, and mm-hmm. I'm the i the bottom rung, rung of the ladder. I'm the <laughs> I'm the dairy farmer in it. So it's it's a very balanced group. It gives a very balanced look at um, the the problems and the solutions to increasing these these species on your farm. So yeah, it's it's very comprehensive, and we're we're continually updating it.
0: Yeah, well, congratulations for bringing it to this stage because uh, there's many people that would, you know, maybe keep it keep it as far as their own farm, but I mean, you're spreading the word, so that 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 too is to be applauded. Um, in terms of the, the the research into sort of non chemical control, do you think that there's enough happening there to to uh, support, you know, because down the line, uh, are we expecting that there will be less and less uh Permitted or being used in agriculture, what, what what sort of future would you like to see there? Yeah, well,
1: we are we are looking at a reduction in in intake, so It's going to have to happen. Um, well, like we, we have the, the pres- prescription, the HPRA are labelling it as pres- prescription only medicines from next spring. So we have to demonstrate a need for using it now. Um, so they're not they're not any longer going to be seen as a management or sorry a control. Um, they're going to be seen as part of the management from now on um, so that, that's going to create a, a reduction um, in, in terms of looking at the alternatives there's, I suppose look, there's an awful lot of snake oil out there and, and a lot of mixed messages and, and yeah we, we need to be looking at, at alternatives there, there's no new products coming on the market so we're really in cattle we, we've three products and we've five and sheep. that's it um, so we're, we're not looking at having you know New chemicals coming onto the market to to control parasites. That, that's not going to happen. Um, but the alternatives, yeah, look, the stock pond there for flight control. That's that that works. It's just laborious. You know, if, if we could come up with a with a a, a, a solution for applying that a bit a bit easier, it, it would certainly be a massive help. Um, grazing strategy, genetics. You know, all these things lead into into. Um, negating the need for using these products in the first first place. So I think that's that's where the game is at. We're not going to get you into... Know, I don't think we need to look for silver bullet for a replacement for, for antimentics. We, uh, we, we have been looking at controlling these these parasites in the animal itself, in the host, but now we're going we to have to start looking at uh, managing them out at the free living stage out on grassland.
0: Thanks, Bruce. The, the um, a comment here and, and, and question, uh, Fantastic presentation and best of luck with EIP. Um, organic farmers have for decades spoken of the detrimental effects of certain wormers on other worms of the soil. Um, the question here is how does liming affect the dung vehicle or, or do we have any uh, understanding of, of that?
1: Yeah, well, I I've, I haven't come across it at all, to be perfectly honest. Yes. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I couldn't see that there'd be any issue. They are quite uh they're quite tolerant to th- those sort of things i know um down in australia they're actually washing the the imported beetles with, with formaldehyde to uh t- to clean them of any fungus so i'd say i don't see this line it would be an issue but I, i'm only guessing I, I haven't seen any research on it
0: Pat lots of questions coming through there for bruce yeah uh and i suppose a very practical
2: one uh you're down the line a little bit. What are the first steps that you would encourage other farmers to take uh, on the, the journey to encouraging dung beetles?
1: That's a, a really good question. So I, I, I would say have a chat with your vet. Tell them you, you want to have uh, take a diagnostic approach to, um, to your, your parasite control on your farm and incorporate using, um, there's a, you can do fecal egg counting, milk testing, and uh, have, every time you go pick up a bottle, have a chat with your vet and, and see can, can you work on, on reducing it? Um, you'll be surprised the reductions that can be made in, in, in wormers when, when you start asking the question.
2: There's a question there, uh, I suppose given a higher level of, of activity and, and the integration of materials into the soils, is there a possibility that it will help with sequestration? That, that actually,
1: yeah, I came across that down in in, uh, in Adelaide. They were actually um, feeding cows, dairy cows, uh, biochar in their meal. Um, and these these cows went out, out to the paddocks then, and they they were uh, introducing a, a species called an Antophagus faca, which is a, one of those tunnellers we were talking about. And they were tunnelling down this the faeces then from the cows containing the biochar into the soil. And we were measuring the the level of carbon in the soil prior to and uh, post uh, introduction of these beetles. After a number of years, it was a pilot scheme, and the farmers are they're actually going to get paid there, which is an <laughs> issue last week as we've been hearing. But they're actually going to get paid for the sequestration of carbon into the soil down there, which which is really good. So yeah, they do they do help. Yeah, even without the biochar, I I I'd have no doubt about it.
2: Uh, you, you talked about the AC20, and uh, you might just go back on on a little bit on on how exactly you're picking the the twenty. Is it purely on the basis of of performance, or are there other uh, signals that you're, you're picking up on?
1: Okay, so yeah, look, the, the AC20 rule. I'm I, I'm actually not just dosing twenty percent of the herd or twenty percent right. of the calves. I I would what what it it's different parameters. So you start weighing the calves. So, I suppose, firstly, look, reverse back, we're doing faecal egg counts. When the faecal egg count goes above a certain level, that that says to me, my cows need to be warmed. And we go in, then, with weighing scales and weigh each calf individually, going in the crush. Um, at that point, then, we are looking at the average daily live weight gain. And we, we use EBI, then, for with the predicted calf weight uh, and its target based on that. Um, and if, if it's not hitting both of those, it's wormed. And also, it, we, you, you would uh, good stockmanship then as well. So if you, a, if you have a calf with a wet tail or is looking a bit miserable, or uh, even if they are hitting those targets, we would worm that calf as well. Um, so it, our last visit there was, was, was 50% of the calves. That was the first one this year. Uh, 50% of the calves were wormed. Um, it's, it's it's going to be impossible to, to, to tell exactly the worm burden of each calf unless you go and do a faecal egg count for each calf, um, and that's not practical. The weighing scales is a really good practical way of selecting calves um, and, of course, good, good stockmanship.
0: Bruce, we have a lot of interest around the, the traffic light system you spoke about and how, that, how does a, a paddock go from a red paddock to a green paddock. Um, also a question here in relation to uh, the same within the same same from the same person. is there any cha- ch- uh, change in chemical sprays used on, on paddocks for example, roundup or chemical sprays for docks on the farm do these have an impact on dung beetles do we know? So two two questions there and okay
1: I, the, the sprays I don't know. Um, I'll be perfectly honest um, and haven't again haven't come on any any uh, any information on it. The traffic light thing, yeah, that's a really good question. So, um, so if you're if you're looking at a paddock that has a high worm worm burden on it, um, and you're assuming that it's high, if you come in with animals that uh, like old dairy cows that are are susceptible, not susceptible to, shouldn't be susceptible to worms, if they graze it, they're going to they're going to hoover up a lot of the um, the parasites and shouldn't affect them. Uh, the other way is to come in with a mower and mow the grass off and put it into bales or, or into the pit. Um, rest period is another thing. So if it's if it's red in, in, in August um, or September and that's not going to see animals for whatever reason or another until next spring, you know, you, you, you can kind of assume that you could bring that back to an orange at that point um, because the, the period of, period of time uh, be, between... Uh, animals, is, is going to affect um, between grazing. is going to affect the amount of infective uh, larvae that survive in pasture. Mm.
2: The question there is to uh, there's a, a couple of mentions of the EIP. What is is the proposal? What exactly are you going to be doing in the EIP?
1: Yeah, so we we we're still have a bit of um, ironing out to do in it, but we're we're taking a, a, a diagnostic approach to to anthelmintic usage and. Made a commitment to not use macrocytic lactones on calves. Um, so that, that, there are two, two main areas and we're, we're looking at uh, building shelters then for, for other insects around the farms and um, we're baselining as well. So we're looking, we're actually going to get a baseline. There's one of the regrets I have on my own farm is that I didn't, before I started taking a diagnostic approach, I didn't actually uh, get a baseline done on my farm to know what insects are there. I know there's more insects on the farm now that there has been for years, but I, I can't actually quantify it. Whereas we're getting in a, an entomologist to do a, 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 wide, a wide scale, um, fairly wide scale uh, representative uh, baseline on, on the farms to, dis, to decipher what ones we've there so that we can, we can show an improvement.
2: And is it all dairy farms or is it a, a, that are going to be involved or is it a, a, a variety of different types of farms
1: no, it, it's, it, it's a dairy, it was a dairy farm a Chagas dairy farm group and that it, it's born from that so it's all it's all dairy farms. Yep. Uh,
2: and a question there: Is there much difference in the types of dung beetles uh, that are uh, found on for different species uh, and and I suppose different grazing systems?
1: Yeah, there is. Um, there there's a, there's some some species that be very common. Um, some prefer sheep. Some prefer cattle. Uh, some will only be seen one with one or the other. Um, some cross over different soil types. Uh, th- there's a lot of different factors that, that affect them, um, you, and uh, the the diet of the animal would have a, have a bearing, a, a big bearing on it as well. Um, so, for example, like you wouldn't, you, you might see as many uh, geotropies in, in your typical uh, dairy farm. Um, But you would have an awful lot of uh, species there called seem to they seem to like the the liqueous paths more so. Um, So there is, yeah, there's big variations in what you see where. In terms Um, of the,
0: sorry, I had a question here, uh, Bruce, in relation to the economics of this. Um, Have you seen any savings uh, on your farm? um, Or have you been able to quantify that?
1: uh, to be honest yeah Mark if, uh, probably but the issue is but Bruce stays asking questions and buying microscopes and building shelters that <laughs> he, every few cent that he saves he spends back on it so it, it's been for me it's been cost neutral but yeah yeah, definitely Like it, it, leaving the dumb beetles aside if you just take a diagnostic approach you would make savings on, on, on antimintics and it doesn't happen the big saving isn't in the first year it's when those calves get up to uh, being mature stock. Uh, because the quantity of stuff that we're using in dairy cows is, is phenomenal. It's, um, you know, if we can reduce that, that's when we make start making money or start saving money. Um, and so, are, yeah,
0: there other, are there any other um, enablers that you think it could, could be put in place to support this uh, across the country? Uh, I'm just thinking in terms of policy or schemes or... Uh, I know. If, I think some of the the uh, discussion groups or some of the department schemes have supported fecal egg uh, counting uh, in the past as well. But uh, aside from that, are there any any other uh, things that you'd like to see happening there at that scale?
1: Yeah, there's there's lots we could do. So um, we have we have a lot of information in, in the country. We're just not not recording it and collating it very well. Now that's probably been a bit critical, we're not collating it as, as well as we could be. Um, We've ICBF they're doing a fantastic job in, in terms of genetics. Um, if farmers took a diagnostic approach, recorded the information on the, on, on the herd app, it's really easy to do as we're, as we're um, I, I shouldn't have said herd app, I should have said farm software company. Um, uh, and. Um, that, that goes into a database that ICBF could, could access. We, we would actually find bloodlines of animals that are gen, uh, genetically uh, dispositioned to be resistant to parasites. Um, and we're, we're seeing that with the liver flu peeping through, even though it, it's uh, at, at the factory stage is probably a, a little bit construed by uh, people using um, uh, fluke control in, in the animals. So I suppose, look, Particularly if, if we start all, uh, a lot of us start using a diagnostic approach and weighing scales for animals. Uh, we we will see the ones that are performing better when they, the feet hit the ground, and we can take those bloodlines and enhance those. Um, so that that's a particular area. Um, we, the vets have they have they have a, a big job on hand to be fair to them, um, and they, they need to be worked with. We we the farmers need to start, with we, we don't want to be ringing their vet, our vets when, uh, when we have a problem. We want to be ringing our vets when we don't have a problem. So we should, we should be paying our vets for, for healthy animals, not paying them for sick animals. So farmers need to, we need to take a different approach, have a chat with our vets. Um, th- that has been kind of, uh, with the knowledge transfer uh, scheme that was on there a few years ago, that, that kind of did start off a few conversations, particularly around antimicrobial usage, or sorry, antimicrobial usage, but uh, if that was enhanced upon and uh, taken up on board a bit more, that, that would be a big help. Uh, and then look, in, industry should be getting involved in this as well. Um, there's going to be less less scare of um, maybe residuals of these products being around. Um, so it's you know it's it, it's in their interest too. And I know down in in Tasmania, the the milk processors put in money into Importing it was actually an Irish species, uh, the Geotrupes spinager uh, He's found in Ireland. They they Im- introduced him into a, a catchment area of, of a river to uh, solve algal blooms. So, you know, the, the 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 industry can kind of a big impact into into what can what can be achieved as well. So that's their kind of a few areas. I, I could go on for days, Mark, but. <laughs>
2: There's a question here. Do you see a, a potential for a side enterprise in in, in breeding uh, beetles and supplying them to to colleague farmers?
1: Okay. Yeah. Well. Look. The, the yes, probably. But the, the issue is, um the, the beetles when you breed them like that, it, it's not a matter of buying them in a box, let them out, and job done. They go. Out. If if you're going to go out with your macrocytic lactone, or your neighbour uses it, they're going to go and they'll be dead straight away. So. It's not. It's not the answer. Like the answer is in in the grassland and the analytic uh, management. Um, so yeah, look, there there is there there is certain a certain call for I think the those geotropies, the the tunnellers, to be to, for work to be done with them. Definitely that. There's probably other species. There's there's over forty species in the country. So I I, I wouldn't know them all, and I know exactly what ones are where. But there's. The, the more diversity you have in the dump pad, the, uh, the harder they work. So it, it's important we have diversity. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a silver bullet answer either. Right.
2: The question there in relation to the dump paddock and did you consider uh, water connectivity in selecting your, your dump paddock? Uh,
1: at at the time, no, um, but it, it's something we've talked about since because at the time we, we started at that, we didn't realise that the, um, the the most prolific um, and in in that that case that, the case study that um, Trinity College did was actually benzimidazole. Um, I didn't realise that I, I, I would have put my money on, on a macrocylic lactone to be the, the most problematic, but it was Benjamin in the days old. It's something I've been rethinking, all right. Um, yeah,
0: so, yeah. So, uh, can you just remind on. us, Bruce, again, of the website, um, because I, I, there's quite a few people just wondering. Why.
1: Yeah, so it's Okay. Yeah.
0: B-E-E. Yes. <laughs> B-E-A-T. Yeah. We'll just share that in the chat for everyone. Sorry, Pat. No, uh, uh,
2: in terms of the, the milk recording uh, and the, the results from the, the milk recording, uh, there's just a question as to how that uh, operates and what kind of results are you getting and how, how do you relate those to, to action? Okay, so, um, it, the important thing with these results, this is why I I,
1: I say talk to your vet. Um, We're not doing individuals, sorry to to state that, we're not doing individuals for milk recording for ostratasia readings for uh, parasites. So um, the interpretation of results is, is very important. So if you're seeing a high reading in astrotasia levels in, in your, your your milk it might not actually mean that there's that there's that's disease My, i saw mine there this year was was moderate enough um i was getting a little bit concerned you know maybe i do need to go maybe i don't um, this was a bug tank breeding and um i we, we had an unfortunate incident completely uh, unrelated to disease we had a, a we lost a cow uh, in the yard here and uh, last month. So it, we sent, we got a rabbit mason from the, the, uh, the processor and sent it into the lab for analysis and there was no signs of any ostratagia in the, in the animal. So that put my mind at ease saying that, um, you know, we haven't got a problem there with, with that worm in particular. Um, the interpretation part of it is that is, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with the test, it was 100% perfect. I have no problems about that, but it's it's telling me that the animals have become, have become exposed to, to the ostracia. Um So, if you have particularly a lot of young stock in the herd, uh, they're going to show up with higher readings than older animals as they become exposed. You just have to be very careful about about interpreting um, the results.
2: There's a question there in relation to, to workload, and and I I, I suspect you're not, probably not the best person to ask it in terms of, of the workload you you put in. But taken a farmer who takes on uh, this this approach, I presume there's 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 uh, positives and negatives. Uh, uh, less time dosing, but a lot of time put into other uh, elements of the, the the process. Where do you see the balance? Is is this something that could be a, a time negative or a time neutral for, for for a farmer in other words it's not going to uh, mean a huge amount of extra effort to do i suppose the right thing in in in, in a lot of if that's the way you want to put it
1: yeah that, that's a very good point um so in terms of the physical stuff so uh, you're going to, to herd your calves once a day anyway so you know once every two or three weeks take a, a fecal egg count it, it do, it's not that big of a job to do you're not catching calves to do fecal egg counts you don't do that um, you, you take a pooled result, take a pooled sample of a number of fresh cats. Yeah. So that's that's not not an issue. Post it off to lab. In terms of actually dosing, you've, you're you're spending less time dosing, um, so you're saving time there um, in that regard. Um, and look, the, it, the dosing process takes a little bit longer because you're weighing. To be honest, probably should be doing that anyway. To It's beneficial to to, to a dairy farmer to get, to get his, his dairy stock up to target weight by using mm. as little inputs as possible. Um, so you, you're being more measured with performance then. So, you, you know, if you need to intervene with, with concentrates or not, then you can make that decision uh, based on, on the performance of And um, Management end of it. There is a bit more than that. And uh, you, you need to be just... It, it, look, it, the, the likes of traffic like grazing, it takes it takes a little bit of um, what's the word discipline, I suppose, just to, to fill it out as you're going along. It's not that big of a job. So We've we on a clip chart drawn a Chuck, um, so it's just when you move the calves, just just mark it. Um, I suppose moving the calves. Look, as as it said, your calves will perform better in in a system where they're. Um, they're not exposed to heavy warm burdens. So you're going to gain from uh, additional performance from the animals by moving them more regularly. Uh, it sounds a bit earnest in moving calves every three days, um, but if you have a field set up, um, you just move a tape um, in front of the calves once every three days. It literally only takes 10 minutes to do that. Um, it's just when you go move from one field to another, That takes a bit longer, obviously, but we'll be doing that anyway. So, yeah, look, I suppose maybe time is probably neutral,
2: long and short of it. Yeah. And I suppose a final question, just in terms of the, you mentioned, talked about dry and wet there right at the beginning, the impact of of, uh, weather conditions, drought, very wet weather, in uh, in terms of dung beetle populations, is there a, a, are they impacted, or or do they merely go on their way regardless of weather? Yeah, well, look, I know water table has has
1: an effect on on the tunnellers. Um but after that, I'm not really sure. But I did notice when I was catching beetles last year, um, you would think that you would catch more in the, in the dry weather, but it was actually it was it was just after the rain that I caught my biggest catches. Um, I'd be going out to the traps expecting to see nothing in them, and they'd be, to be full. Uh, beetles. Uh, just after after a, a night's rain, for example, um, you, you seem to get a lot of beetles. Um, so I, I look. I don't know overall what what effect the rain would yeah. have on on, uh, on populations. If that's if that's the question, um, but the appearance of them seems to seems to follow uh, a fine day after after wet a wet day.
0: Okay, uh, we're, we're, we're unfortunately we're right up on time. Pat, did you have a final comment there? You no, no,
2: Justin, uh, we watch the space with the the, the EIP and and okay. hope that you keep the, the the information flowing out of that through the the websites that you have. So I presume that's yep. the plan.
0: Really, really inspiring presentation and and, and an innovative project, uh, Bruce, and and continued sex, success to you and the, the your colleagues and the the EIP group. And like Pat said, we, we really would love to. To, to get an update maybe down uh, in a, a year's time or so when you have maybe some outputs from that. Uh, but uh, thanks, yep. thanks for your time this morning and uh, excellent presentation. Uh, reminder to everybody that um, we will be joining you next Friday uh, with an update w- on the Agricultural Sustainability uh, Support Programme. And so we will have Noel Meehan and Joe Crockett, uh, Noel Meehan from Chagas and Joe Crockett from Dairy Sustainability Ireland uh, to discuss that. And uh, we do uh, look forward to uh, seeing you next week. Uh, thanks to our, our production team, uh, Andy Boland and Yvonne Maher. Uh, I'm going to be taking a few weeks of a break. Uh, so um hand you into the capable hands of uh, Pat. And uh, I think Porek uh, is going to be assisting you as well, Pat. And uh, so I look forward to seeing you all, uh, hopefully with a bit of a, a refresh uh, in, in at the end of August.